Hi everyone, my name is Sean Martineau, and I'm interviewing David F. Walker for Spectra. David Walker is an American educator, director, journalist, and writer. Some of his publications include his own film criticism zine, Badass Mofos, his novel series, Super Justice Force, his documentary, Macked, Hammered, and Shafted, the IDW series, Shaft, an Imitation of Life, and the 2015 DC Comics series, Cyborg. He currently writes Occupy Avengers and Luke Cage for Marvel Comics. In our interview, we discussed Walker's upbringing and education, his work on black exploitation, the dangers of nostalgia and poor education, his entry into the comics industry, politics and comics, and the controversial figure that is Iron Fist. I would like to thank David F. Walker for his time, and I hope you all enjoy. Can you hear me? Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah. I got it to work. Nice. I, I'm an old man. Skype and, and all this shit um, confuses me. So, <laughs> like, it never seems to work. Your your has actually gone smoothly. So, which means at any minute my iPad will probably blow up. So. Yeah, I was just about to say you just jinxed us. Yeah, well, life is a jinx. There you go. I don't know where you're based out of, but it's been raining nonstop in Portland for oh the last five years it seems like and um uh I, I you know i grew up on the east coast and i i still have family there so i i'm back in new york i lived in new york new jersey and connecticut uh, and um i'm back there fairly regularly and during snow season and it's enough to remind me that i don't ever want to live there again so um i i do prefer the west coast to the east coast Growing up, yeah. I grew up in the center of Canada, where okay. like, we have a different system than you, but minus 40 uh, Celsius is, like, crazy cold. Yeah, that's that's insane. That's You might as well be living at, at the North Pole, as far as I'm concerned. So. so, like, when I get – I moved to the west side for school, and I was just like, why do – I never want to go east of west again, you know? Yeah, we could talk about the weather forever. But that's that's what the that's one of the things that ter- defines you as being officially old. I feel like is when you complain about the weather and how bad your joints ache. And um, I don't want to do that. So I teach at Portland State University, and so I'm teaching with a fairly wide range of students. But the vast majority of them are between like 22 and 25, and and it's like you're speaking a completely different language. And, and 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 I never thought I'd be one of those those people. that's like I don't understand what these young people are talking about. I I have more questions for my students than they have for me most of the time. So yeah, it's it's interesting. I think that what we used to call like the generation gap or or, or whatever is is lo- a lot less clearly defined in in this day and age because just in part because technology and everything is so rapidly changing. And you know when I was a kid growing up. There were only so many channels, and you know, nobody surfed the internet, and and so it was like, if something happened on TV, we all watched it. Right? The next day at school, everybody was talking about. Now I, I go onto Twitter, and people are talking about something. I'm like, I don't know if this is a television show or a person, or is this is this a new term for some sort of drug that's on the street? What is what is this Game of Thrones people speak about? You know, so. Um, it just it is what it is, but it's 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 also kind of cool. I mean, there's nothing I love more than learning new things. Sometimes it scares the hell out of me, but I enjoy it. So, 
if you get me started on on either politics or black exploitation, you may never get me to shut up. Those are you know those are two things that are are um, politics aren't aren't as fascinating to me as they used to be. Now it's just sort of like they disgust me more than they fascinate me. But but then I, I you know I, I should I should clarify and say that I'm disgusted by politicians and, and sort of what they're putting everyday people through. But then there's another type of politics that I do find endlessly fascinating and that that I'm passionate about and that sort of you know, for lack of a better term, would be the politics of justice or the politics of inclusion or representation. Because when you get right down to it, there's something political about everything, just by the nature of, of what politics can mean and what it can be. So so we can jump in wherever. Okay. We'll, we'll start with black exploitation then, mostly because I have one question that doesn't kind of relate to anything, but I was really interested to get your thoughts on it. I was reading Shaft, Imitation of Life which I think is some of your best work. In it, the, the fake movie that Shaft is kind of consulting on, it reminds me more of, like, Black Dynamite rather than, say, Shaft. And <laughs> Shaft very clearly has an opinion on it, but I was curious what your own opinion on the more silly side of black exploitation like Black Dynamite is. Well, you know, I should, I should start off by saying that, like, I enjoyed the movie Black Dynamite, but I love the animated series. I think it's it's one of the – I have every episode on my iPad, and so it's one of those things that I watch when I'm on flights just so whoever's sitting next to me is at the very least forced to see it. They might not have to listen to it, but they, they, they have to see it. But that said, the thing that bothers me, not so much about Black Dynamite, but in, in a much more general sense is that Black exploitation has has come to be thought of in a much more comedic sense, and and people focus on the funny aspect of it. And I and I'm not angry at Black Dynamite for having done it because they did a great job with it, and and it's a great you know parody. But in the the, the public consciousness, there's I think there's too much associated with black exploitation being something that was funny. And some of that stuff was meant to be funny back in the day, like the movies of Rudy Ray Moore, you know, Dolomite, Human Tornado. Those were supposed to be funny. But a lot of this other stuff wasn't meant to be funny. It's it's just either dated or sometimes it was, you know, low production values or whatever. And as someone who's who's dedicated a huge chunk of his life to, to studying those movies and what they mean on a much broader sense in a, in a much larger context there's something about it that bothers me that it's comedy and so when i i wrote shaft imitation of life the the initial idea had come from really the fact that ernest tidyman the guy who had written the original shaft novels and created the character shaft was not a big fan of the the movies the original movies or the tv shows he he thought you know that they kind of diluted his character and so I had, I had done Shaft, A Complicated Man, the first graphic novel, and then I'd done a novel called Shaft's Revenge. And I'd had this idea kicking around in my head of wouldn't it be kind of interesting if Shaft got hired to be a consultant on a movie and then that movie would be somewhat loosely based on his life. That was the initial spark of the idea. And, and part of that was because Tidyman in the novels – talks about how Shaft gradually becomes a little bit more and more famous because of the cases that he's on. And so all of it was just fascinating to me, but I wanted to explore it. And then I realized that there was this opportunity 
to sort of make a statement about sort of the misunderstanding and misrepresentation of, of what that era was. And then two or three years ago, Warner Brothers, or excuse me, New Line, which is owned by Warner Brothers, announced that they were doing a new Shaft movie and that it was going to be a comedy. And that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. And so Imitation of Life was was very much me not responding to Black Dynamite, but responding to this new Shaft movie that has yet to even be made, but is going to suck. The thought of doing Shaft as a comedy not that it's impossible, because because at the end of the day, Imitation of Life is, to a certain extent, a comedy. But that's about, I think, as comedic as you should be going with that character. And I think that Black Dynamite, as an animated series especially, has gotten the comedy done so well, has done the comedy so well. Why would you – unless you can improve on what they're doing in that show, why bother? Perhaps we should have started with you telling us a bit about your childhood and schooling and maybe how you got into comic books. I dropped out of school, out of college, by the time I was 20, and I did not go back to school until I was 42. I went back to school and got my degree, and that's where I started, you know, everything from Lacan to Freud to um, Zizak to all these cultural theorists and all these philosophers and all these people. Like, I had... That's when I was introduced to a lot of them, was, was fairly recently in life and fairly later. And some of their stuff was, was really interesting, but I was like, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, whatever Lacan is calling, whatever he called it, like, I had come up with my own phrase for it 15 years ago, you know. Um, but the professor who taught it was really into Freud. And so everything – Every movie we watched and every discussion we had was either Freud or Lacan, one of the two, right? And it was like – and I was the one who was going, you know, there's more ways to look at stuff. You know, there's more ways. And, and, and we, we would get into these heated arguments, my, pre- my professor and I, who, interestingly enough, I was older than him, <laughs> you know? And so it kind of bothered me, and, and it, we, we, we got into this point where we were arguing – me and him in front of the class over the movie Psycho. He's reading from this review, this old critical essay on Psycho and how the knife is the extension of the penis and da-da-da-da-da and, and all this Freudian nonsense about Psycho. And I asked him, I said, well, you know, where does reality – if Hitchcock's Psycho is really all about just the male penis and castration and all these things and, and – I was like, where's reality fit in? And he goes – and the professor says, what do, you, what do you mean, where does reality fit in? And I said, well, Psycho was made by Hitchcock, but it was based on a book by Robert Block, and Robert Block based that book on a real thing that happened in Wisconsin near where he was living at the time. And so Psycho at the time, the book at least, was an examination of – violence in America and the killer as celebrity. And it was an examination of reality and how America interacts with, with violence. And I, and I said, so doesn't it go to follow suit that maybe the film was the same thing? And my professor looked at me and said, Psycho was based on a true story? And I responded, you're not qualified to teach me. And so I didn't get a very good grade in that class. But that's kind of my, my feeling about things. It's like... It's okay to talk about stuff that you don't know about, 
or that you don't know that much about, but there's no excuse for not learning. And so I have a student who is transgender and I was, you know, I was like, I don't know what I'm supposed to call you. Is it okay to ask, you know, like 10 years ago, I, I never would have been having this conversation because this wasn't the sort of conversation that was being had 10 years ago. And there's part of me, the, the, the 48-year-old man who has been using very specific gender pronouns his entire life that's like, I, I don't want to learn to speak a new language. But then it's like, well, language is evolving. And the way people think is evolving. And not only the way people think is evolving, but the way people feel is evolving. And it's totally selfish, you know? And and so the, the key is, is, is that you begin to move and you begin to learn more. And it's like, okay, I, you know, the other day I was – I honestly said to myself, I don't know the difference between transgender and transsexual. I, I really don't. I'm 48 years old, and I don't know the difference. And it, it it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I was like, I need to learn. I started to type it into my Google search engine, and then I thought, no, because who knows what the hell kind of weird stuff is going to show up in my search engine. I actually know people I can talk to. I can I know real human beings who can explain this to me in a better way than Wikipedia would ever be able to explain it. And And it's going to be a real human interaction. But it's like it's my responsibility to know that difference, and and part of that responsibility is I've got to you know is either to do the research, whether it's on my own or actually have the courage to admit to. And I know who the, a couple people are that I will admit this to. I don't know, you know, I, I don't know what this is, and and but I need to know, and I want, and more importantly, I want to know because I I, I feel that that's that's part of our responsibility as human beings, is to understand our fellow human beings. I wouldn't say I didn't have a good education growing up. I, I actually had a really good education, especially elementary school. I went to a really good public school and, and was taught very well. But I also wasn't taught very well in that there's just rigid ways of teaching. And I was I was taught by teachers that were very rigid in their thinking. And so for me, a lot of the education that I got was, was me reading stuff on my own, was me understanding stuff on my own. And, you know, like the, the perfect example that I have is – I was raised by my mom and my grandparents. My, my mom is white. My grandparents are black. My father was black. And I was raised in essentially a black household. In, in, at home, I knew there was so much stuff about history just from what my grandparents would talk about and what my family would talk about. And none of that was being taught to us in school, right? The, the, the most we were ever learning was, you know, black people were slaves. Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves. I, you know talked to my family and I went to the library and I found books and and I started studying on my own. And so I like the, the concept of studying on my own and and so you know now they call it in the education system they call it um self-directed study. I think that's but I was that kid who was doing that at a really really early age. And and again learning how to think critically and examine stuff and wanting to know as much as I could about a given subject. And, you know, this was all in the days before the internet. So I'm a kid growing up and I would go see a movie and I would, I would become fascinated with it. Or I may, had my mom buy me any magazines that came out that were about film and filmmaking, just so I could understand what was going on behind the scenes. And if I saw a movie and I, and I saw in the credits, 
you know, based on the book by or whatever, I would I would go out and find that book and which got a lot. There are some books I didn't get till I was much older, you know, but it was like I would I would I was always fascinated. I mean, I'm, I'm the kid who saw One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest when I was a little kid and couldn't wait to read the book because I found out it was based on a book. That was me, you know, so. Well, we're still on this topic. Um, the end goal for me is educational reform in Canada. That's what I want yeah. to work on because, um, like you, I kind of grew up, except instead of black culture, it was more indigenous culture for me because, like, our school was like, hey, we did this horrible thing to these people, but we're not going to talk about it anymore. So yeah. I went out and I studied more on it, and that has led me to the belief that education needs to be more cultural instead of just our culture on top and everything kind of second tier. We should be promoting histories of all different kinds of people, you know? We're built – our countries are built on immigration. So, like – Immigration, be, slavery, genocide, built on a lot of things, yeah. And you're right. Yeah. There's – you know, it's like here in the U.S., we just finished – February is Black History Month in the United States. As if black history – as if you can remove the history of, of Africans and their descendants from the history of the United States – and that there would still be both a history and a United States. There would be neither without what we call black history. Black history, mm-hmm. women's history, indigenous history, it's all part of this bigger thing. But we try to segment it, and by segmenting it, what you're talking about is we're diminishing it. And we're making it as if it's less important, as if the history of the Europeans who immigrated to North America – is actually more important than the indigenous people who also immigrated. They just came from another direction across, you know, the Bering Strait. No, every every everybody's history has an importance, and it's all intertwined, and it's all interconnected. And the moment you dismiss one, you're actually dismissing history as a whole. Mm-hmm. It's just multiculturalism has to be a thing that embraces all cultures, not just the cultures you want. Yes, you hit the nail on the head. That kind of scares people. The last thing you want to give up is your superiority. The second thing you don't want to give up is is the notion that there is somebody less than you. We're built that we always have to have somebody weaker so that the importance of our survival somehow is tied with the notion that there is someone weaker than us. You know, over the years, I've seen it time and time again. I've seen here in the U.S., you see it a lot within the black community, which is incredibly homophobic. And it is so disturbing to me, the, the homophobia that I see within the black community, because I feel that we as black folks, as black Americans, as number two on the list of people who have been oppressed beyond human comprehension, the only people that have been oppressed worse than us are the Native Americans. And there's just less of them because they were all killed off, right? That we could turn around and be intolerant and oppressive to anybody absolutely blows my mind. Well, we're kind of still on this. Um, um, I'm white, but I see that in my thing because it's like I want people to become more open, and people are just doubling down on the fact they don't want to be more open because it's a very difficult path to come to terms with, especially when you were the colonizer in the past and continue to be the colonizer in the present. Like our culture it's systemic. It just it exists. Yeah. There's few things in life that are harder than admitting you're wrong because admitting you're wrong on, on a much deeper context means that you were misinformed 
ignorant, whether it was willful or by chance. And and so few people want to own up to that. So few people want to admit to that. I, I always I always go back to one of my heroes is Malcolm X. And after Malcolm X made his Hajj, made his pilgrimage to Mecca for the first time, and he discovered that what he thought was Islam and what he thought was the, the, the Muslim faith was very different than what he discovered when he went to Mecca. And he came back a changed man. And in front of the entire world, he stood up and said, I was wrong. The things that I have been working for were wrong, and I'm changing. And when you look at, like, brave things that any human being has done in, in the sort of the public eye, I'm kind of hard-pressed to come up with someone who's done anything braver than that. And it's always interesting to me. It's like, I don't want to admit when I'm wrong. You know, sometimes it takes years to figure it out. Sometimes, it, it, you know, and sometimes you never figure it out. But the key is, is like, if you're wrong, you're wrong. But people don't like change. You know, they, they, they really don't. I mean, they complain when Facebook changed the, the themes, the, the way the timeline looked, you know. <laughs> and, you know, they complain when favorite show gets canceled. People are, are used to their routines and they don't like to give them up. It's why people die of lung cancer even after, you know, they've been told to stop smoking. It's the reason why here in the U.S. we elected Trump. There's people who just don't want to give up the, the, the shit that they, they want to hold on to. The problem is, is that you can't actually hold shit. You try it, it's squishy, it gets in between your fingers, it gets under your fingernails, it stinks everything up. Holding on to shit is pointless. And, and, and because nostalgia is, is not based on reality so much as it's based on a memory and a perception of a reality. When I went to college in my early, earlier part of my life, going to school in New York City, and it was back when Times Square was still a rundown, you know, cesspool. And it was, you know, prostitution and drugs and all that sort of stuff. And it was the it was the Times Square that you see in movies like Taxi Driver, you know. And I and I go back there now and it's all these lights and glitter and it's Disney and it's like just this tourist trap. And I actually find myself getting nostalgic for that old Times Square just in a different sort of way. You know, and that's the thing. It's like we have to be careful. You're right. We have to be in a careful, careful with nostalgia because it can be incredibly dangerous. Um, it, it, it nostalgia is what allows us to get back together with that person that we, we were in a really bad relationship with, but we have this nostalgic memory of, of well, there were some good times. Yeah, there were, but they weren't as good as you remember. So just let it go. There's no stopping time, and there's no going back in time. We have to move forward. Okay. Um, how did you end up working in comics? Because it sounds like film is your true love. So how did you end up in comics? Ah, that's, a, that's actually a good question, especially in the way you phrased it. My true love is actually storytelling. I did not understand that until I was later, uh, much older. And so it, 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 first it's storytelling, and then second it is, for lack of a better term, it's, it's educating or informing people. I think storytelling is, is like one of the oldest forms of educating and informing people. So the two are, are intrinsically tied together. When I was a kid, uh, all throughout grade school and high school, I wanted to go into comic books. I wanted to be a comic book artist and writer in that order. 
and I and I would draw my own comics and I would write my own comics and none of them were good, but that was what I was I was working towards. And when I went to college, I studied art and but I was a very immature human being, and so I I I, I kind of gave up. I gave up on 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 comic books. The funny thing was was that I was going to at the time I was going to school of visual arts in New York City. I was living in student housing. And the building that was where the student housing was, there was this corner of the building where everybody was a film major. And I lived in that corner of the building, and so I was living around all the film majors. None of them knew who I was. We would all sit down and talk about film, and and I was carrying on these conversations with them because I loved movies and I was reading about them all the time. And and one day someone said to me, like, they were like, dude, what, like, how come you're not in any of our classes? And I was like, oh, because I'm, you know, I'm in the illustration program or whatever it was. I can't remember the name of the program. And they were like, you're not a film major? And I was like, no, I, I want to do comic books for a living. They were, everybody was like kind of shocked. But there was one person, and, and keep in mind, this is the late 1980s, and I'm still friends with this guy. His name's Carlo Giardina. And Carlo said to me, dude, maybe you should think about film. Like, you know a lot, you know? And so this is right around the time I was, like, realizing that I wasn't – that for whatever reason, I wasn't going to cut it as an artist. A lot of it was lack of discipline. It was a lack of maturity. But that writing was something that, like, it came so much more easily to me. And so I, I shifted gears, and I started writing. And I'd been – like, I'd been already been writing – comic scripts and comic ideas and so I, I shifted and I started writing uh, both screenplays and and I started writing like these little they weren't quite jokes and they weren't quite sketches but but that would actually lead me into for a very brief time doing stand-up comedy um, which not a lot of people know but from about 1989 or 90 till about 1993 or 94 I I did stand-up comedy. I couldn't tell you then why I was doing it, but I can tell you now why. It was because I was writing, and I was coming up with these ideas, and I needed immediate gratification, which is part of youth, right? We just – you're 24 now. You, you might understand some of those aspects where it's like, like everything is urgent as hell. It's like I got to do this right now. And so I, I was doing stand-up comedy because it was like I, I could have an idea, and I could write it down. And then I could find a place that did open my comedy. In less than a week, I could test out whatever I had written and if it worked or not, right? I was just just writing all of the time. I, I, it felt like my, my mind was never at a loss for ideas. I would go see a movie, and I'd be like, wow, that movie was terrible. Why was it terrible? You should write down why it was terrible. And I would, I would just write it down, knowing that I was going to be a writer but not figuring out that – what I really was trying to be was a storyteller. And, and again, I didn't figure that out so much later. And, and I wish I had known that because it would have made aspects of my life a lot easier. So that was a sort of long-winded explanation of, of how the writing started. And in short order, what happened was I kind of struck lightning. I'd been trying to get some films up and off the ground from, we'll say, 89 to about 95, 96. 95, 96 is when I started producing my, my black exploitation documentary. But at that same time, people started discovering my writing on film, 
And this was back in the day of publications like Psychotronic and Giant Robot and Shock Cinema and all these different film publications. Most of them aren't around anymore, or I should say pop culture publications. So I started my own zine uh, in conjunction with, with developing this documentary that I eventually made. Just because of the way self-publishing was back then and the way the retail world was back then, it was pretty easy to break into. And that world was small enough that you know, the publisher and editors for a magazine like Giant Robot was reading my magazine, which was called Badass Mofo. They offered me some work. Alan Gordon, the um, the editor for a hip hop magazine called Rap Pages, read my work and offered me offered me some gigs. And so I kind of stumbled into journalism, and I gave up pretty much everything for what turned into a career in journalism, starting around 1999, late 90s, 98, 99. And and I I lucked out. I got a job at a newspaper, and even though I didn't have that much experience. But what I did was I, I went to all the other editors and the copy editors, and I was like, hey, I'm probably the stupidest guy here in terms of you know experience. I have the least amount of experience. Can you guys teach me? And so I learned a lot while I was there at the newspaper, but it wasn't quite what I wanted to do. And, it, and two or three key things happened, but the most interesting story is I was working for the newspaper, and I knew people in the comics industry in part because – some of them were people I'd gone to college with back in the 80s, but also just because I had been trying to break into comics on and off throughout the 80s, and I'd gotten to know a lot of editors. So I get a call one day from uh, Diana Schutz, who was an editor at the time at Dark Horse Comics, and Will Eisner was going to be in town for an, an event. This was probably around 2000 or 2001. I was several years into my journalism career, and – Will Eisner is like God to me, you know, he's, he's like the greatest comic creator of all time. And Diana was like, Hey, Will's going to be in town for this event. And nobody seems to be interested in talking to him. You know, it'd be cool if somebody would interview him. Would you be into it? And I was like, like, would I interview Will Eisner? Hell yeah. You know, that's, you know, Orson Welles is dead. Billy Wilder, I think he had just, Billy Wilder might still have been alive, but there, there weren't that many people whose work, had had such a profound impact on my entire life. So I sit down and I interview Will Eisner, and it was an amazing interview. And afterwards, he says to me, he goes, wow, you – he goes, he goes, this was a really good interview. And I said, well, thanks. And he goes, you know so much more about comics than most journalists I ever talked to. He was like, that's it's, – it's amazing. You did, you did a really good job researching this, the, the topic. He said, most times they ask me really stupid questions. And I said – well, you know, that's because I, I wanted to get into comics. And I said, you know, I actually went to school of visual arts where you taught, but I never made it far enough into the program that you could that I could take any of your courses and da 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 and and he said, You wanted to do comics? He goes, Why did you stop? And I was just like, you know, I just didn't it just didn't work out and he goes, Well, you know, it's never too late and I and I and at the time I was in my early thirties, right? And I said to him I said, yeah, it's it's. I'm getting older. It's a little too late now, I think. And he and and he was in his 80s, and he had just, you know, I think he had just done last day in Vietnam, which was one of the last things he did. And he looks at me and he goes, "You're never too old." He's like, "You could be really good at this. You know enough. You could do it." It was like being struck by lightning or being touched by the hand of God. And so I came away from that, and I was like. You know, I was still terrified about the prospect. I mean, I had a decent job, but it was, like I said, this was 
2000, 2001. And, and this was before – this was just as the newspaper industry was really starting to collapse in on itself. And so I, I kind of took you know, what, what Will Eisner said to me, and it was mulling around in my brain. Um, at the same time that this happened, and this is also Diana Schutz's fault, Diana calls me up one day and right around the same time and says, hey, there's, um, there's, this, new com- there's this comic book writer who's, who, who's moving to Portland, and you guys should meet um, because you're both huge into films, and, and he, he doesn't know anybody here, and, and you'd just be a really great person for him to know. And that was uh, Brian Michael Bendis. And and at this point, his his biggest hit was you know was he was just he was doing I can't even remember if he'd come up where he was in Daredevil you know Ultimate Spider Man was this was like again two thousand two thousand one so again he was still his star was just starting to ascend and I was I, I literally had only read one comic by him and that was I was reading Powers on a regular basis I'd never read Ultimate Spider Man I'd never read Daredevil I knew that the guy wrote comics. But so Diana introduced us, and I never said to him that I was in the comics. And he actually knew me through my work in Badass Mofo. He had read some of that stuff. So he just kind of went with the assumption that I was just a guy who was really into film, and I never said anything to him. And over the course of several years, we actually became really good friends. And like one day we were just sitting around talking, and I was like, you know, I got to get out of the newspaper business. And, and he was like um, – you know, what do you, what would you, what would you do? And I was like, you know, I always wanted to do comics, but I, you know, I don't know if, I don't think I could do. And he was like, what? You want to do comics? Why didn't you ever tell me this? You know, it was, it was, that's, that was exactly what the conversation was like. And from that moment forward, he sort of became one of those people who, he, he, he never was pushing me that much into comics, but he was definitely pushing me into being a storyteller. You know, he was like, oh, my God, you could write books. You could do this. You could do that. I thought all you, you know, he was like, I thought all you wanted to do was write, you know, was be a journalist. And I was like, no, I, I stumbled into journalism. And so he, he was one of those people that really started pushing me into becoming a storyteller and embracing that notion that tells stories. And, and so I left my job at the newspaper and I still, I dicked around for a long time. I left my job at the newspaper. It will be 10 years in May. I left in May 2007, and I started writing my first novel shortly thereafter. It took forever to finish that first novel. I had, had in that time, after that moment with Will Eisner, had gotten some work in comics, and I was still doing a little bit of stuff with my, my own publication. So I was always there. I was, I was at San Diego Comic-Con every year, and people knew me, and, and I, I was friends with, with creators like, Jim Mahfoud and Scott Morse, and I'd met Greg Rucka, all these people I'd, I, I'd, I'd gotten to know, and, and they knew me. And, and so when the time finally came, it was like, to the rest of the world, it was like, oh, this guy, David Walker, he's an overnight success, right? <laughs> Whereas it was like for, you know, someone like Diana or Bob Shrek, who used to be an editor at Marvel, or not Marvel, excuse me, at DC and at Dark Horse, or, or, or someone like Bendis, it was like, it was anywhere from 10 to 20 years in the making, and it was sort of like people going, finally, okay, got, you finally got it. And I, and I got in, you know, comics sort of happened. I've been struggling ever since I'd left the newspaper to define myself as a writer and, and knowing that I, I, I had to do comics simply because it was something that I'd, I'd wanted to do as a kid and that I wouldn't, 
it would always be that itch that had that I, I hadn't scratched. And so one of the people that I'd met along my journey was a guy named Robert Love, who was an artist. Him and his brother Jeremy Love. Jeremy did a book called Bayou, which was amazing. And I'd met them years ago at conventions. Robert reached out to me and was like, hey, I, I, I'm doing this project for Dark Horse, and I really need help writing it. You know, I'm drawing it myself, but I really need help writing it. Would you co-write it with me? And I was like, sure, you know, because that was like – it wasn't going to be my first gig in comics, but it was it was a the first gig that seemed like it could go somewhere. I had done some stuff for like Tokyo Pop that had, you know, crashed and burned. And, and so Robert and I did a book called Number 13, a limited series over at Dark Horse, and that was – that sort of was the, the, the jolt of energy that I needed to really get serious and then and examine, like, well, what will it take for me to further my career? Because number 13 didn't do that well in terms of sales, and, and it wasn't leading to more work. And then I realized, oh, in comics, it, every project you do isn't going to lead to more work. You're going to have to go out and find that work. You're going to have to go out and create that work. And that's what I began doing. And so I kind of put together a game plan and followed it. And it, it actually kind of worked. My game plan kind of worked. It, it took longer than I thought it would. I map, I started mapping it out in 2011. I knew, I, I said, it was a five-year plan. Where I planned to be in 2012, I didn't get there until 2015. So it took me three years longer than I had planned. And and now I'm sort of mapping out where I want to be over the next 10 years, five to 10 years. And but in the back of my mind, there's this memory of, okay, well, you put together last time you put together a plan. It was a five year plan. And it actually took you the full five years just to get to year number three or year number two, whatever it was. And so, yeah, so that's where I'm at now. That's how that's how I ended up in comics. You know, I did Shaft over at Dynamite. I'd done an independent book that nobody had heard of, um, two independents. One was my own, was called The Army of Dr. Moreau that nobody read, and another book called The The Supernals Experiment that nobody read, except for editors. (laughs) That's who you want reading it, though. Exactly. And, And so it was The Supernals led to DC contacting me about doing Cyborg, and, and Shaft actually led to Marvel reaching out to me right around the same time. And, but Marvel didn't have any definite work. But the conversations had started with Marvel. And, and I had said in part of my five-year plan that I put together was whoever, whoever gives you work first, you take it. It doesn't matter. You know, you're not going to be like, oh, I, I grew up reading Marvel more than DC, so I'm only going to work at Marvel or whatever. I was like, take whatever work you can get. And, and so DC came knocking first, and then Marvel shortly thereafter came. And, and the interesting thing was, was it was clear from the conversations with Marvel that at the very least they had a, a somewhat deeper understanding of, of who I am, where my writing strengths were, whereas DC always in the back of my mind felt like, oh, I, I sort of filled a diversity need more than a creative need. And so, you know, my time at DC was was a little bit shorter than I than I had thought or that we had planned, but that's fine. You know, you you, you do what you got to do. It's like, how do you feel? Because it seems like politics are really struggling to find a foothold in comics right now, 
And that's insane because like superheroes are literally social justice warriors. That is what they are. They are literally that. So I don't understand why politics is having such a backlash, and I was wondering what your thoughts. Yeah, are. I think that um, I I I don't have an answer for that. I really don't. I have some. I I think about it a lot, and and it concerns me a lot. And I think that um, we live in an, we're living in a time, both globally, but definitely within the U.S. and 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 the comics industry, as as we think of it in North America, is a U.S. industry, even though it's you know. It, it has its global reach, but I think that there's this this notion of of being really loud makes you right, and people are scared of people who are really loud. Um, they were scared of of being on the on the wrong side of people who are just shouting and screaming, and a a very small but loud cross section of the of the comic book world it's mostly fans but it's also retailers and journalists it's all it's it's but they're they're small in number but they're very very loud and the, and the key is is that these larger numbers are not nearly as loud and they don't spend their money the same way so like i have friends who are who are very passionate comic book readers but they don't necessarily go to the comic book store every week you know, they'll wait for the trade paperback or they'll order it off of Amazon or, they'll, you know, or something like that. And it's like there's not enough of them making enough noise to move the needle the way it ne needs to be moved. And so you get retailers who, you know, the way the industry is set up is that the retailer is actually the final. For the publisher, the retailer is the final customer. The publishers are just trying to sell their books to the retailers. The retailers then buy the books, and up until recently when DC had their – you know, implemented their returnable policy, none of that stuff is returnable. So the, the, the retailer buys the book, and then they turn around and try to sell it to the customer. And the retailers are only buying books that they know or are or, or pretty sure they can sell, and they only know this by one of two ways, is that either the customer pre-orders the book. In which case, they know for a fact they're going to buy it. And I've been into retail shops all over the country, and I've talked to retailers. Some of them are guess very liberally, and by that I mean they they know Batman's going to sell, they know Spider-Man's going to sell, they know these certain Marvel and DC titles are going to sell. But then they're also like, oh, you know what? I bet you Wicked and Divine might sell because this is a really good creative team. And even though this might not be only a cup of tea, I know a couple of customers you know it's not going to hurt me to buy one or two copies and then there's the other ones that are like they don't care what do you do you know you're not doing anything to build the audience you're not doing anything to 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 ensure that the, that the industry that you have become part of as a retailer is going to be around and, and and to me that that drives me bonkers you know well it like, I want to get into comics. I want to tell political stories in comics, and I think there's an audience there, and it's growing. But Marvel is so afraid of alienating its older audience. It's very much the X-Men Inhuman thing. I love the Inhumans. I didn't grow up in the 90s. Yeah. But they're like, our primary readership is these guys from the 90s that are the only things keeping us alive. And I'm like, but there's there's an audience out there that want the political stuff, and because you're putting out so much, that audience gets drowned out. Yeah. 
And it's it's difficult. I mean, like I can't uh, I can't remember who I was talking to. I think I was talking to Jim Zub about this, and and we were like going over like you know how many titles do you read a month? And I was like, I don't have time to read everything. You know, it's like like I read stuff if it relates to um, somehow it's related to a title that I'm working on, or if it's just something that I really, truly love, but I don't, I don't have the time to read everything because I also want to read books and I also want to, you know, hang out with my friends. And, and, and so I think that, I think right now the industry, you know, all companies, it's not just Marvel and DC. There's the two biggest ones. They're trying to find a way to, all they're trying to do is, is, is figure out how to keep the market alive I think more than they are trying to think about how to grow the market. And, and I, and, and I think it's just, it's interesting to me when you look at how much money some of these movies make or, you know, how many views some of these shows get, how popular these characters are in other mediums. And yet, and I was thinking about this cause I, I actually got into it with somebody very recently who claimed that they loved comic books and that they were a huge supporter of uh of black superheroes and that they um they wanted to see more diversity in comics and they wanted to see more black superheroes and i said oh so well so what do you think of black panther and they were like well i haven't read that and i said well what do you think of you know power man and iron fist so well i haven't read that i said what about mosaic you know all three marvel titles all three written by black creators with black artists. And this person had not bought or read any of these three titles. One of them happened to be one of the ones that I write. And, and I was like, what do you mean you love black comic books and you love black superheroes and da, da, da. And their response was, well, I love the Luke Cage show and I really want to see the black Panther movie. And I was like, Oh, so you're an idiot who can't differentiate the fact that you love superheroes and you love a particular genre, but you're not supporting the medium from which they came. And that's where we're at. That's the big struggle. Captain America Civil War makes, what, a billion dollars at the box office, but how many of those people are actually buying Captain America comics? And the comic industry itself, and by industry I, I mean the publishers, I mean the distributors, I mean the retailers, and I mean the the journalists. It's all part of the the circle. Um, we'll pull the consumer out of the equation. We're just going to talk about the retailers, the publishers, the distributors, and and the journalists, the press. All those factors are not doing what the most that they can to grow that audience. And you know, you see it when. You go into a retail shop and it's not user friendly to women or to children or to, you know, it's like I go into a comic book shop and I see a section that's just for kids and I'm like, they get it. Like there's no excuse for parents or kids to walk into a comic book store and and look for something for younger readers and it's sitting they're right next to something that might be a great title, but is absolutely inappropriate for a six-year-old to ever yeah, pick up and look at. Probably not the first issue a child. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, so so I just I, I just think that you know 
we're talking about a dysfunctional industry in which all of the the overlapping fa- you know, factors within the industry are dysfunctional, and none of them seem to be that concerned with growing the audience. And if you're not interested in growing the audience and growing your base and growing the market and and cultivating it, then what you're doing is is you're it, it becomes death by attrition. I think it also falls upon the fans to help keep this going too. The, the fans are, the, are are honestly, I believe, are the last hope. I really do. I mean, I look at I look at the success of a book like Bitch Planet, and you have a creative team that's doing amazing work, but it's the fan base that keeps it going. I, I think the fans don't fully comprehend the power that they have except for when they're wielding that power negatively. I definitely agree. Most people most people only wield that power negatively and and you know which is in the the, the exact opposite of what we're supposed to be doing. Spider-Man taught us with great power comes great responsibility and most of us aren't using our power responsibly. Okay, I only have 3 questions left and they're all character based. So I'm going to start with the one I know the least about, which is Cyborg. Could you tell me what it was like writing Cyborg, who's such a predominant black hero? I'd love to see that character find success, but I always felt like finding his success did not necessarily mean that we had to lose sight of his humanity. And that, to me, the only thing that was interesting about Cyborg and Vic Stone was his his humanity and him trying to reconcile the fact that even though he's more machine than man, he is more human than anything else. You know, maybe you know, maybe ten years from now I'll look back and not feel this way, but I, I, I honestly felt like there was a lot of resistance to what I was trying to say, and I think that that character, more than almost any other character in the DC universe, at least within the top fifteen most popular characters, and Cyborg is is definitely in the top fifteen. He re- he represents more to more people that are underrepresented. So he, he, he represents something to, to a lot of black folks. He represents something to a lot of um, nerdy, smart people, you know, because the guy's like a genius. And then he also represents to people that are differently abled, which I think is – there's a lot of intersectionality going on with that character that I think a lot of times just sort of lost on a lot of people that I was arguing with. And after a while, it was like, I can't do this to those folks because I'm one of them. And so I was like, see you later. I'm gone. Okay, I'm going to move into Luke Cage, and then I've only got okay. one question afterwards on Iron Fist. But Power Man and Iron Fist, you kind of explored that whole we are our own worst enemy thing that you write about yeah. in things, because it's all about black culture and, like, street magic. Like, I really love that Danny and Doctor Strange, they have no idea what any of this magic is, and Luke's like, no, I've been hearing about this my entire life. The Sunstone, don't fuck yeah. with it. Yeah. So... Going into Luke Cage, are you going to pull out, like, are you going to focus a lot on the black culture of that? Like, because that's kind of what the show did. And I'm wondering if you'll be aping that or doing your own thing. I am going to be moving through that world and that landscape and trying to do it in a way that the TV show didn't do it. And there was a certain level of freedom during Power Man and Iron Fist because – Luke Cage hadn't debuted yet. Then it debuted, and nobody, so many people didn't understand that Luke Cage and Power Man were the same character. Now 
Luke Cage is Luke Cage, and there's the show, and there's the comic, and everybody is like, you know, well, how much of an impact is the show going to have? And it's like, well, obviously the show's going to have some semblance of impact, but like, I'm one of those people who likes watching a show or a movie, and then likes reading a book and appreciates that they're not the same thing. Um, and so yeah, so there's going to be some aspects of 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 Luke Cage, the series that. You know, going back to what you were talking to me before about my agenda not being on the surface, it's going to be interesting to see it, if people pick up what it is that I'm talking about. And and what I'm talking about a lot in Luke Cage, especially the first story arc, has less to do with race than people would think. But there, there is a very deep, strong message there. Is it going to be family? Um, um, a, lo- a lot of it does have to do with family, yeah, and it has to do with how what how family means something different to everybody, and and we touched upon this a little bit in Power Man and Iron Fist. Well, actually, we touched upon this a lot, but I'm taking it in a different direction because this is now it's Luke solo. It's not him bouncing off of Danny, and in the first story arc, Jessica's not there, and the baby's not there, and it's Luke on his own. It's about what happens in life when we start to discover that we aren't exactly who we thought we were. And even the people who've been telling us that we're one thing and claim they love us, that that sort of comes into conflict with how they treat us. I remember after watching Fences, uh, the, you know, the, the film version of Fences that Denzel directed based on August Wilson's play, and it was like, there was a moment where I was watching it, and it reminded me of, of certain people in my family. And I don't know some of the people as well as I think I do. You know, like I knew my grandfather really, really well. But by the time I was born, my grandfather was, what, like probably in his 50s, you know. And I know bits and pieces of his life from, you know, before what he told me and the things I, the stories I'd heard. But even as a kid growing up, it was like, you know, I wasn't up all night. You know, I remember my grandparents used to have these poker parties at their house, and everybody was drinking and smoking. But I never really knew what went on in those because I always had to go to bed. You know, there was one night I remember I stayed up and somehow managed to sneak into the other room, and I spied on them, and I got caught. But it was like there's entire worlds that we never know about the people we love the most. And that's part of what Luke Cage is about. It's about the world that we don't know that when we find out about them, we're like, how did we not know this? All right. Um, final thing, and it's kind of a combo of two things. So in the comic, you use Hawkeye in a way that reflects a lot of – I mean, I grew up in a white society and stuff, and it's been – it's been a learning experience over the last five years, especially. Yeah. And you do – there's one line you have with Hawkeye where he's like, I prefer idealistically misinformed. And that, I feel, is reflective of a lot of people like <laughs> me who are just now coming to realize how fucked up things have been. Yeah. Because, like, I've never been a part of a culture that's had to fight to be heard or fight to not have shit taken from them. So I've always been idealistic about the sharing of cultures. I'm like, yeah, we can all share. And they're like, well, you can say that because your culture has always been on top and has controlled the sharing against our will. Yeah. And so for you to use Hawkeye in that way, I was just like, you took my favorite character and you just <laughs> made him beautiful. And it was great. But so I got to ask 
you. How do you feel about Iron Fist in light of recent controversy? I, you know, I haven't seen the um, show yet. I haven't seen a single episode of the show. And I was always one of those people, you know, for a long time, I was like, hey, it would be cool if they reinvented Iron Fist and had Iron Fist be, you know, um, of Asian descent in some capacity. Wouldn't necessarily have to be Chinese or Japanese. Iron Fist could have been Hmong or Cambodian or Vietnamese. I would have been happy with any of that, but they, they never went that direction. And so when I inherited the character, obviously Ed Brubaker and Matt Fraction had done some interesting stuff, but I was inheriting Danny Rand. You know, and when they announced the Netflix show, I was like, I'd be ecstatic if they had, you know, an Asian actor. You know, Donnie Yen, even though he's a little old, but Donnie Yen as Iron Fist would have been amazing. And, and, and to have him be, you know, a guy played by an actor in his 40s would have, would have meant a lot. But I was also very realistic. I was like, they're, they're probably not going to do this. When I was writing the character, I was like, you know, I, I don't want to write him as the, the sort of white savior. But I also don't want to write him as being a complete you know, privileged tool. There's, there's, we get into some stuff later on in, in the story arc where, where Danny doesn't realize how much privilege he has. And he's, you know, especially during our civil war two run, I really, I sat down and I read all the classic iron fist stuff. And then, and then I read the really classic stuff, which I think is the Matt fraction stuff, Ed Brubaker stuff. I love that. I read it all. You know, and I'm always looking for what I can bring that's slightly different or a different take on the character. And I was like, well, you know, here's a kid who was – he was essentially all orphaned at like eight years old. He was raised in this mystical land that not only was mystical, you know, it was, it was mystical and it was, you know uh, – I mean, yeah, it was steeped in a lot of, of tropes and stereotypes of Asian mysticism. But I was like, he was the only white kid. And, 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 and he was the chosen one, and, and I was like, that would really screw you up and leave you in a really weird place, and then to return back to the world where suddenly you, you, know, you, you grow up essentially as a minority, which is what he was in Kun Moon, but then you come back to the regular world, and I was like, what would that guy be like? And, and I was like, you know, and I was searching for it, and I was searching for it, and I was like, well, more than anything, he's going to be missing – his family and he was raised in a really you know tough environment and and i so i made this decision that, that danny is constantly in search of a family and luke cage isn't like a brother to danny luke cage is is danny's father luke cage is even though they're close in age he's the father that that danny always wanted or the stepfather and that was the decision that i made in writing power man iron fist i never told anybody that Luke thinks of Danny as a brother, but Danny secretly thinks of Luke as more of a father. And the, and the other decision I made was that, you know, with Clint, that sort of being idealistically misinformed or whatever, however I phrased it, was that Danny was going to be forcefully optimistic. That deep down inside, Danny is a really dark, cynical, and negative person who's lost his, he lost his entire family, you know, betrayed, all this stuff raised in a place where where the number one emotion he felt was alienation and he came out the other side of that and his decision was i'm always going to be positive and optimistic 
so when I started writing him and people were complaining, oh, he's a goofball and he's annoying and da 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 da, and I was like, that's not you're not you're not getting it. You're gonna get it once the dark side starts to come out, and and the dark side was always planning on bringing it out during what turned into the Civil War II storyline, and I wanted to give him um, an opportunity to have like real depth and complexity, and I wanted. You know, at the end of the day, there's people will say to me, you know, oh, well, you know, I w- I'm a white guy, but I grew up in an all black neighborhood and I know what it's like to be picked on. And I was like, yeah, you, you do. You know what it's like to be picked on. But at some point you were able to move out of that all black neighborhood, weren't you? And that's what I wanted Danny to be. I wanted Danny to be that guy, a person who understood alienation and oppression, all of these negative things that so many other people have to deal with their entire lives, but he only had to deal with it for a certain amount of time before he had the luxury of going back to being part of that dominant culture. Part of what the Power Man Iron Fist storyline is about him trying to reconcile that and not reconcile it in a very poetic way, you know, that which then makes it almost sound like he's trying to be some sort of weird trope or cliche of the of the mystical Asian American. No, he's just like a goofy white kid who actually has had such a well-rounded, amazing experience in, in, in his growing up, but he doesn't quite recognize it, which a lot of us don't recognize. It, it's not just – when we talk about privilege, we always say – most people talk about white privilege. We don't understand that privilege is, is, is actually a universal concept and that I don't care how poor you are or how little you have, there's probably somebody who has less than you and is looking at you or at least thinks that you have more than them, and in their mind you have privilege. It's, it's, a, it's a very universal thing, and, and that's sort of what I was trying to play with was this notion of guy who, who kind of gets it but isn't quite there yet. I, I also figured that he, you know, Danny's a hell of a fighter, but he's got incredible arrested development. He was orphaned at eight, and then you know what people don't realize is that when he comes out of Kun Moon, he's he's nineteen. No one ever talks about how how really young um, Iron Fist is, but he's in in the original comics. He's like nineteen years old. Since characters don't age the same way in comics as they do in real life, I've I've always gone with the notion that that Danny Rand is actually really young. Even as he grows older, he's still sort of immature because he didn't have the same upbringing. He spent most of his life in a monastery, you know, being alienated, being trained to be the living weapon. So That's a side of it I've never thought before. Because, like, for me, it's always Danny was sent to protect this race, and they gave him the their most important weapon, and then he ran off with it, which is, like, that's pretty fucked up when you look at it from a different way. But the way you look at it is, like, it, it's, well, that's the thing. If I looked at it completely that way, I, there's no way I could have written a character that was remotely likable. And and I wanted him to be likable. And, and I thought, you know, the, the thing is, is like, yeah, there's, there's all sorts of aspects of Iron Fist and that character that are problematic. But really, there's, there's something problematic about just about every single character in pop culture. It's just a question of how hard do we want to look at it. And, and can we do something to turn it around? As, as writers, can we do something to turn it around? As artists, can we do something to turn it around? That was really the primary goal for me with, with, with him was to like – like I knew I, I'm, the, I'm not going to get to write 
Iron Fist is an Asian guy. He's going to be a white guy. So what can I do with that? And what can I do with that so that at least during my time with that character, we can further him? I, I still don't know if I was, you know, if I succeeded or not yet. I think that there was, I, I think the way people started responding to that, to, to Danny specifically during Civil War Two, and what we've seen with him since during, um, like, the the Harlem Burns and 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 the the street magic stuff. I think there's I think people are re- are finally starting to get a little bit of the character and in getting him in 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 having him grow, he is kind of becoming a bit more of a privileged douchebag. He he's not a total privileged douchebag, but you know like there's a bit in in one of the issues where he's in prison and he's like I'm I'm still in prison cuz I'm I'm making a stand and Luke is like yeah, only only rich white people do that. You know, it's like you can afford to get out of prison. Get out of prison. Make your stand someplace else. And I was like, in that particular moment was I think one of the ones that people respond to the most, where they were like, "Oh crap!" Now I get what you're trying to do with Danny. And you see him getting more and more angry as he's you know in prison, but that anger is coming from his realization that like he can get out, and there's other people who can't. And he's seeing that, like, oh, there's all these other characters who don't actually belong here. I don't belong here. Wait a minute. I can get out, but they can't. I can get out because I'm rich and because Rand Corporation can pay the, the legal fees, and I don't actually have to worry about getting a job once I get out of prison. But what about all these other people? And that's where I wanted – I always wanted to take him. And I didn't necessarily – you know, I didn't know how long the Power Man and Iron Fist run was going to be, but I was – sort of of the mind that, like, I may never answer that question of where, you know, I may never, I'm going to take him to the other side, but it's not going to be my job, and I probably won't be working on the character long enough to actually have him explore the other side. It's going to be more up to the reader to think about, oh, well, what would Danny have done next? And, you know, and that's sort of where we're at, you know. It's, it's, my time with my time with him is just about, well, actually, technically it is over. The final issue of Power Man and Iron Fist comes out. And, you know, I've left him in a place that I feel really good about leaving him. Thank you so much for doing this interview. Cool. It's been a, it's yep. been a blast. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, I, like I said, though, I do got to get running. I got to go. I got to go try to convince somebody to, to uh, stay in the comic industry, even though it's a brutal industry to stay in. So it's an well, it's I wish a, you the best of luck. Thanks. All right. Thanks again. Yep. Take care.